On today's show, Eddie Izzard accepts one of acting's biggest challenges, playing Hamlet solo. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. Eddie Izzard has a long record of dramatic roles. She has starred in two plays by David Mamet and earned a Tony nomination for her Broadway debut in the play, A Day in the Death of Joe Egg. She had a recurring role in Oceans 12 and 13 and even played the title character in Christopher Marlowe's Edward II. But it's her decades of experience as a stand-up comedian that really prepared Izzard for her recent solo shows, first Great Expectations and now Hamlet. Performing every role in those shows requires a marathoner's stamina. Fortunately, Izzard also runs marathons. Hamlet is currently running at New York's Greenwich House Theater. Here's Eddie Izzard in conversation with Barbara Bogave. I was thinking you've been doing dramatic roles in films for, what, more than 20 years, and almost every serious actor that we've talked to here has had Hamlet in their sights. So has Hamlet been on your wish list, too, for a long time? Uh that is a very interesting question, because when I was seven, I wanted to act. I saw a play, A Boy with a Cart, um, by Christopher Fry, um, and it was about St. Cuthbert, and it was... Anyway, I was seven. My mom had died a couple of years before. I hadn't been... I'd, I'd done one little play-let thing before mom died, and and I remember not being that bothered about it. And then I saw this play, and I thought, I have to do this. And I think it was probably substituting the audience's affection for for mum's affection. So at the age of seven, I wanted to be an actor, tried like crazy to get into school productions. Um, being smaller and being dyslexic, so I couldn't do sight reading. All the auditions were sight reading. Here's some lines, you read them out, and I would have probably stumbled over those lines, and I wasn't very tall, so they, I could see the teacher saying, well, you're no good, and we want tall kids because they look like adults, and then they can be believable. So I didn't get anything for eight years, eight, <sighs> nine years, um, which I kept pushing, pushing, pushing away. Whoa, what determination. And and just to say, you said you were you were substituting maybe, you know, the unconditional love of your mother with the most conditional love there is, an audience. It, it is. It's very conditional. Um, and I think that's a good swap because mother's love can be unconditional. Sometimes it can be not there at all. So, you know, or, or somewhat conditional. But mine, my mother was such a loving mother that it was a very positive love. But yes, you have to do good work. So it encourages you to do good work to get this love of the audience. And I think I've, in my head, that's quite a good deal, I think, in life. So I felt when I hit puberty and became a spotty Herbert and... I just and I fancied girls, and I hadn't told anyone I was trans at that point. And I just, in the basic boy-girl kind of relationships, it went from me being a, a football player, a soccer player when I was a kid, and feeling I had a, a sporting existence, and so I could play kiss chase with the girls when I was younger. Hit puberty, and it all went down the drain. And um, so I just thought I can't play. It didn't tie in. I, you know, I wasn't at ease with playing serious roles at this point. But comedic versions of it, I discovered Monty Python, and I thought, well, that's what I'll do. So I actually dropped drama at the age of about 14, 15. I did do some dramatic roles after that, but I wasn't pushing for it. I was pushing strongly for comedy. And it took a long time to go through, and I went to university, dropped out of that, went professional, tried to get things going, couldn't. It took 10 years before my career took off. By the time... 
I'd, I'd gone through sketch comedy and then street performing and then stand-up. But finally, that started taking off in 93. I got a separate acting agent and I started pushing for dramatic roles. So Hamlet was not on my list. This is a very long answer, isn't it? Hamlet was not <laughs> initially on my list. Shakespeare wasn't on my list because also dyslexic. I had great difficulty grabbing hold of Elizabethan verse when I was uh, a, a teenager at school. So I can, I'm hyper-analytical which Hamlet says he is, you know, um, thinking too precisely on the event, one part wisdom, three parts coward, and in, in his mission that his dad has set, out, set up for him, and all the weird things I've done, like stand up in different languages, marathon running, political activist, it, it, getting all the way to Hamlet, it's quite a weird journey. So my what I, what I bring to the table here, where, where I wasn't looking for Hamlet, but, uh, but there came a point where I said, no, I gotta, I'm going to go for Hamlet. I want to do... it. it Shakespeare, Elizabethan verse, it scares me. The I, I had done a Christopher Marlowe play earlier in my career, but I was not bathed in this and I wasn't brought up. I remember I'm good friends with Judy Dench and she said um, uh, her, book, her recent book on Shakespeare, which everyone should should read. If they're a shit lover Shakespeare, of Shakespeare pays the rent. Yes, Shakespeare pays the rent. She said she... I think she said she, all she wanted to do was to play Shakespeare. That's That was her big... Because she, she actually studied as a graphic artist, and her brother was an actor. And then she said acting and thought, Shakespeare, that's what she wants to do. Um, and uh, and it wasn't what I wanted to do. So what sh what scares you about it? You said you were dyslexic. Is it just... It, 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 I mean, it's amazing to think you're doing this solo show, and, and yet you have this history. Well, yeah, but it, it's... The spoken word, it is designed as a spoken word. Um, so that is easier. The learning, you know, if I was sight reading it, it would be harder. But learn it and then live in un underneath the words, that is an easier thing for me to do. It just takes a long time to learn 13,500 words. I did find that I was uh, in initially scared of the poetry because if you look at, say, Gertrude's speech about how Ophelia died, it is very grabbable. It's very understandable. It's very, it's beautiful poetry, which is something I really do respect. That he, he had a great ability with poetry, but that sometimes there's certain parts of Hamlet which are completely obtuse, and you can't work out what he's going on about. And even with the, to, you know, because certain words are old language, you know, and like a bodkin and is actually a dagger, it's a very thin dagger, and so you, they would have known that 400 years ago, and you didn't know. But even if you translate the words, you cannot. And there are work a lot of words in Hamlet that uh, we recognize, but they mean something. They meant something else back then. Makes it yes, even more yes, and there's that, and so I, and I think I don't think he wrote a play to make it obtuse to his audience. I think he wrote a play that was grabbable. He wanted the money coming in, he wanted the tickets sold. I don't think he wrote spinach theater. I think he wrote accessible theater, and that's what we've tried to make it. Yeah, I see that. Where did you start? Because every actor that we talk to here seems to have their own process, um, and some they get this. You know, they wanted to play Hamlet. They get finally land it they read the play straight through and then they watch a million movies or they they read every secondary source what what did you do and what did you do first i did not watch the movies i wanted to do my own version i um i didn't want to be influenced by other people's even though i had already seen other people's versions of it a couple of uh, filmed versions but i've got to a certain age where I have lived a life that is quite unusual and different, and I thought I could bring that to it. If you, what I, what really grabbed myself and Selena Cadell, uh, director. my director, 
And also my older brother, Mark, is uh, two years older than me, who did the adaptation, took it down from four hours to two hours. And what he chose to leave, leave in and what he chose to take out is, is an interesting choice, but he's a, he's a natural academic. Um, we, we fought long and hard over exactly what it is, but I came to it with the idea that when they were starting, when he was writing these plays, they had just moved out from being traveling players. There'd been centuries of traveling players with no fixed theaters. And then the Curtain Theatre, it starts off in the mid-1500s, and then you go through that, and he's at the birth of that time of the theatres becoming more established and set up. And I felt, as someone who was a street performer, and I had been performing on the street for four years at Covent Garden, which is just around the corner from the, the Globe Theatre, I knew what it was like to perform to people and see and look in their faces. So... I just thought my training was so unusual that I was bound to bring something. If I could be open and honest and really get underneath the text, as Selena was constantly pushing for me to to just live underneath the words. And What does that mean um, to you as an actor? It, well, it meant that don't emote over the lines, but just <laughs> find... Uh, the emotion is 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 built into the text, and you can just live through the words as opposed to pushing it and trying to emote over the top of it. So it sounds like the guiding light was getting under the getting under the words, um, because yeah. again, we talked to all sorts of directors here, and many of them talk about. Um, having a unifying approach. And the famous example maybe is Peter Brook thought of Hamlet foremost as a play of questions. And and he began and ended his production with who's there. And he also wanted this this production with Adrian Lester to feel as if it took place entirely inside of Hamlet's mind. So that very internal, intimate feeling. So did you and your director, Selena Caldell, uh, approach the play in, in this way in any way by identifying a, a unifying concept? No, I don't think we did. I think we didn't come with any, any preconceived ideas. We didn't want to say, we're going to make it this, we're going to make it that it's all a dream, it's all in his mind, it's all that. He, but it was trying to make the sense of where Hamlet is going. It is his story, but but why does he delay so much? And if you think about it from Shakespeare's point of view, he technically, basically, you know, he has his father turn up at the end of Act One and says, "You've you know, avenge me, revenge, get revenge for me. And if it was Laertes, he would have done it at the beginning of Act Two, but Hamlet has another four acts where he does not do it, and it's how he delays in it, and it's trying to make a narrative thread that's believable in this technical thing that, that Shakespeare's doing of saying that I, I am Hamlet, I'm really pissed off that Dad's dead, and I'm not going to do anything about it for the longest time you could believe. So it was it was two things at once that we were trying to do but accessibility is what we wanted we wanted it so that people can come along and if they did not were not shakespeare lovers not shakespeare police not people coming along saying this is how it's got to be that we 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 took it so that that it would be accessible just like hopefully how he would like it so that everyone could follow it understand it and be driven through it so okay big question Logistics. What were the discussions like with your director around how you'd handle switching parts or distinguishing between the characters? And I imagined watching you that you know this is perfect. In your stand-up, you play parts and you kind of uh, you kind of uh, pivot between them. You switch sides and move physically to to do that. And I figured, oh, that that's 
they just assumed it, it was probably a straightforward decision, uh, also with the Dickens solo show that you did, uh, that I'd just pivot around when I switch parts. Let's do it like that. Is that how it went? Well, yes, it is. Um, that can sound a bit um, uh, lumpy, a bit like, I'm just going to pivot, but essentially... <laughs> it, Actually, you do it quite fetchingly because you have, a, you have a, a jacket that has a peplum and it kind of twirls. Well, the, there is that, that and, but the, sometimes I will do a full um, turn, and sometimes I just switch um, each direction, I'm, and that's whether I wanted something slightly more dramatic or something just quicker. It comes actually from Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor did this to play different characters. He would turn and do that, and I came from sketch comedy, so I thought, well, I'll do what Richard Pryor's doing, and I've done that for 35 years in my stand-up, and I realized it could work for drama. And the intelligence of the audience is, if you keep the architecture very precise, as you flip, it, you, the audience will hold the other character there while you're playing, you're flipping from one character to another, they will hold it in the negative space. Oh, that is true, because often a lot of context in Shakespeare's uh, plays comes from who someone is talking to. And I was thinking that I was, as I was watching you, I was just imagining, for instance, when Hamlet is on the parapet looking for his father's ghost, and he, and he says, uh, the air bites shrewdly, it is very cold, and he's talking to Marcellus. Um, some directors have Hamlet direct that line at him, and, and Marcellus is a Danish soldier and probably wouldn't understand the fancy language, the air bites shrewdly, so Hamlet dumbs it down for him. It is very cold, and it's this comedic moment that directors set up. Um, but it's all in the context of who's speaking to whom. And when you're all alone up there, you can't necessarily exploit those cues. Yes, there were decisions made on whether... Is he trying to go for comedy here, right at the point where he's trying to find his father? Is he then going to do a, um, a comedic beat against the other person who's up there helping him or, or standing with him, and whether that's the, the logic of what he's doing or that's something that we can bolt on afterwards? So there's a lot of, I think in, in Shakespeare, a lot of people say, ah, I see this is this means that, and that means this, and this is because of that. And, and it can go in many different ways in, in this way, but you, you, in the end you will choose what you feel is the story and the narrative and, uh, and where the comedic pieces should be and when they shouldn't be. Yeah, and following up on this, choosing to do comedy or not, you're you're hilarious with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. You talk to them like sock puppets with your hands to either side of your head, and and you seem to be accosted by your own hands when every time they they show up. How did that How did that come about? Is that also something you you've done in stand up or? Was it something? No, you I've never done a stand-up, but I wanted to do. I I have done it with Henson Factory and uh, Brian Henson, son of Jim Henson, and uh, I I love the from the Muppets going forwards. The what you can do with hand puppets. I have done one. <laughs> I've done a solo amount of training with them in Los Angeles when they were doing. A, they have a stage show called Puppet Up, where they do improvisation with different puppets. And, and there's also um, these French comedians who I work with, uh, Yassine Bellus and his uh, colleague Dedo. And I have, and they do um, Histoire racontée par des chaussettes, which is history told by socks. And so they have very, if you can look at it online, so I had actually worked with them in French doing puppetry on that. And I just thought, well, why don't we do Rosencrantz and Gillenstern as sock puppets, but without the socks. So that's where that came in, and and they seem to work as comedy foils, as Hamlet drills into them. 
No, they really do. Just a question. Do you like the funny bits when you go to see Shakespeare? Or do you even think the funny bits of Shakespeare are funny? Well, they're not really funny. I don't think Shakespeare had... My, I just, my, my, my director disagrees with me on this. I think funny wasn't his strong uh, suit. I think poetry is his strong suit. He's, he's very, his, his best poetry is, is beautiful. But his comedy, I think he goes for wit. And I think the scene with Polonius where he's reading and talking, that should be a really funny scene. But it struggles to hit funny. And you do need the comedy with the, the, the drama, you know, just t two hours, four hours, three hours, whatever it is of tragedy is, can be a relentless thing. And the comedy, the light and shade, I think is, is very important to make it work. So I think he, I think he went for wordplay, wordplay and wit. But he wasn't, I, I mean, most people who come from comedy have a comedy background. They do say things like Shakespeare funny. This is Shakespeare funny, which means not funny, but slightly funny. Or if you're just watching something that is very, very serious, then something even tiny bit funny makes everyone laugh like drains because it's such a change to the atmosphere. The light and the shade, and let's talk about the shade now, because you do the soliloquies really well. Uh, you come to the front of the stage, and you face the audience in a spotlight, so they're they're set apart from uh, from the rest of the action. And it really feels like you're very much talking to the audience there. Or did you think of the soliloquies in that classical sense as Hamlet speaking to himself or in uh, thinking? That's an interesting... Interesting point. It is to the audience, but the audience is, I felt the audience of the Greek chorus of his mind, and he's checking in with his sanity. So he's, they they are the audience. Because I, I was a street performer, and I did used to talk to the audience. They were there in plain sight, just like they were. Remember, and people got to remember this. If you go to the Globe Theatre, it's in the light. You see people in the light. There are no artificial lights. And that's what, I had four years of experience of that. So when I talk to the audience, I really am talking to them. They're my gang. Even from stand-up, I worked out this, that if you ever get heckled, if you can turn the tables on someone who's heckler, which could have quite easily have been a groundling. Groundlings, the people who stood in front of the audience, and they stood. They did not sit, sit. They stood. These guys would have said, boring, get off. You know, They would have been like a rabble of people out there. And you had to keep the play as interesting enough to, to bring them along with it. So I am really talking to them, not at them. That's the difference. I think most actors will happily talk at an audience. This training that I have, this weird, odd training, it's got to hopefully give something different so that people come along and, and go, this is a bit odd, this is unusual, and it hopefully it works better in that way, that the soliloquies are solo solo loquies to the to that audience and I'm and I'm looking in their eyes and looking in their faces. Well particularly what a piece of work is a man is really beautiful the way you do it. Very quiet and very intimate. What were you most paying attention to when you were working on it? What were you most concerned with? On all the soliloquies we needed to find the arc of the soliloquy because Rogan Peasant Slave is right next to, to B speech. It's a, about eight minutes from one to the other, these two big soliloquies. And you've got to realize the depressed state of mind that, that Hamlet is in because by the time he, when he gets to, to B, which is just coming up, that's there has to be a continuation through Rogue and Peasant Slave. And initially, I, I was playing it too brightly, but it is someone trying to 
thinking too precisely on the event. He does hyper-analyze everything. Now, the weird thing is that I, as soon as I started playing Hamlet, I felt very at home. And I thought, this is a bit odd. Am I just... Am I just throwing myself in? Yeah, I didn't have a problem with playing Hamlet because surely you should. It's Hamlet, and there's going to be a to be speech, and you're going to people are going to watch. And the, and I just didn't have this problem. And this was a couple of years ago when we started doing open rehearsals on it. Because he's so um, analytical, and you said you are so yes, analytical. Because I am hyper analytical. I came out as trans uh, forty years ago, or thirty nine years ago, and I did self analysis on myself because I couldn't get an appointment at the at the medical practice at university. They just couldn't get it together to give it to me. So I thought, right, I'm not going to do that. I'll I'll do self-analysis. I just lay on my bed and took my mind. I walked my mind through what I was thinking and why I felt the way I did. And I didn't come to any great conclusions except for I decided shame and guilt were not something I should be dealing with because this is how I feel as opposed to I have twisted myself into a place where I'm a wrong person thinking, having wrong thoughts. I do think this way. I do feel that I, I would have been happy to have been born a, a girl or a woman. So since then, I have analyzed everything. Um, and this is why when he says, um, of thinking too precisely on the event, a thought which quartered, this is the, in his last soliloquies, all occasions to inform against me, um, a thought which is one part wisdom and three parts cowardice of him hyper analyzing every situation because he, when he sets up the you know the the, the plays the thing where I'll catch the, the the conscience of the king it's a delaying tactic they're all delaying tactics now from a playwright's point of view you can understand he's got to delay this to make it into this big epic that he wants to let, which ends with this massive fight and everyone dies it kind of works but it's the oddest trajectory so rogue and peasant slave I just try and sit inside Hamlet as a non-actor, saying, how can this guy be so emotional and I can't get any emotions out of me? And just being right underneath that and then saying, this, if, if he was me, he'd, he'd go berserk at this point and I'm not doing anything. Hamlet's constantly seeming to talk about himself, checking in with his brain and going, I'm not doing it. I'm really not doing it. Nothing's happening. I, even at the end, he says, my thoughts, from this time forth, my thoughts will be bloody, I'll be nothing worth. Um, because he's not, doing it. He's, he's going off to England. He's trying and to talk so, himself up, it sometimes feels. Yes, he's trying to get himself to dip because I don't, he must be ashamed of himself for not doing what Dad has said. Dad's ghost turned up at the end of Act 3 saying, you're almost blunted um, thing, which is a good technique from Shakespeare's point of view. If, if, if everyone in the audience is going, where is this revenge? Isn't this supposed to be revenge? Aren't you supposed to? Because Laertes, who hasn't got so much brains upstairs, but is ready to kill Hamlet at the drop of a hat once he's heard that Hamlet killed his dad, that's what ha Hamlet should be doing, but he's not doing that. Anyway, that, that all revolves around into Rogan Peasant Slave. You go through several different beats in that until he goes, what an ass am I? I'm just doing, I'm just I'm just talking and talking and talking. I'm packing my my heart like a like a whore and with words and God. Okay, okay, I don't know what I, I've got to do. The play. Let's do the play. But the play is a delaying tactic. He shouldn't need to see his uncle pull a face. If you think about the real logic of it, because his uncle could pull a face because it's his brother. You know, say say someone else had killed. All oh, right, um, it makes King, no sense. Yeah. yeah, he could say, "Oh God, my God, this is a hellish thing," because his brother died, and he's really emotional about it. That's what I would do with my brother, who did the adaptation. I'd be horrified to see that, and then people say, "So you're guilty?" No, I'm horrified that my brother was killed in this way. This is repeating it in my brain. So it's not a good proof, but we all go, well, "It's fine." That you know, the place, the thing, because we like the couplet and we like the idea, and Shakespeare needs it to make this play get to Act Five. 
I want to talk about Ophelia and Gertrude now, because uh, you do change your voice and your posture between characters as you switch, um, but very subtly often, um, yeah. except with some notable exceptions like the gravedigger scene, which was hilarious. Uh, but for Ophelia and, and somewhat for Gertrude, though, you do have a somewhat different affect, and, and it's understandable. Ophelia's a young uh, girl. So you and you seem to modulate your voice to a gentler tone or soften your gestures as well. But you have thought so much about gender. How did you think about portraying these two female roles? There's a thing in British tradition in a British state of pantomime, which doesn't exist in America, I think, but people might know of it. So so women play men, men play women. But the women play men quite elegantly in pantomime. The men play women in quite a Quite a, the ugly sisters in, in Cinderella is the classic thing, and and they bad makeup and they and clumpy boots, and they, they just look outrageous and and not nothing to do with uh, what being a woman is, what, what, what being feminine is, I, anything like that. So what I wanted to do before in Great Expectations and here in Hamlet was that the female characters that I was trying to mine the essence of what. If I had grown up as a woman what and became Gertrude in that situation, where would I be? What would I be? And try and physicalize it in a certain way that I have I have a certain more boyish look than girlish look, but give a certain um, hand gestures to both of them, a certain physicalization that, that hopefully will, over the time as I'm running the show uh, more and more, that I, I can get it more and more precise or more and more different so that people watching on the stage can say, ah, oh, that is Gertrude, that is Ophelia, that is Hamlet, that is Polonius. But it was giving honor, trying to give honor to the female characters so that people would still say, ah, oh, well, you're a trans person playing this and, that, you know, Ophelia doesn't look quite as girlish as I thought she might look, but it's, it's whatever I've got physically and mentally that gives them honor. Right. Everybody makes this analogy between you running marathons and doing these marathon solo productions, Great Expectations, and now Hamlet. But is that how you think of it yourself? I mean, it seems, I don't know. Do, do you prep the way no, you would for a marathon, physically or mentally? And do you pace yourself the way you think about a marathon? You were just talking about eight minutes between two scenes, so it, that seems to be a marathoner's mindset. Um. No, I only say eight minutes because it does seem to be eight minutes in my head. <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't, I do have determination. And I do think, I don't think I fought for it. I think I got the determination gene. I think I had this when I was younger. I dropped out of university at 19, um, <laughs> came out as trans at 23, and my career took off when I was 30. So it was a bloody long slog going through this. So I, this endurance thing, this this marathon thing, this endlessly pushing at things until they they happen, that is a mindset that I have, and it doesn't quite doesn't necessarily link with the marathons because the marathons are part of that. But it's not that the marathons are affecting the Hamlet. Hamlet is part of this this thing of I wanted to do really good work, but I'm not on people's list for Hamlet. If you think about it, someone who's come through who studied accounting at university, that's just because I could add up and I could wanted to do a course while I. And I had to get a degree. This was dad, mum and dad had this idea, and even though mum died years before, that they'd never been to university, and me and my brother had to go to university. This was the this was the structure. We knew this for a long time, but I always wanted to act. I wanted to do that. So I had to pretend that I was going to do some well, civil engineering or some bloody thing or be an accountant. And 
it was kind of annoying. Um, but then I dropped out of that and I was pushing like crazy to be the actor that I wanted to be. And so Hamlet is at the end of this, not not even at the end, this is a point in that I just live my life like a, a, like a marathon. Um, and it just happens to be I've run marathons as well. But everything has been on, on, on trying to do it. And as a trans person, when you came out, if you came out in 1985, that basically... Career-wise, I didn't even have a career. I hadn't started my professional career. I hadn't been able to get paid much for any gigs at that point. But you were basically on a hiding to nothing. You were going nowhere. And I came out at a point when I could have just, I was just taking off and I was just about, well, the, the information could have just killed my career just as it took off after pushing for so long. Um, I was 29 or 30. So... So many, you know, years after dropping out of uni, it was 10 or 11 years since I dropped out of uni, about 23 years since I started wanting to act, just at the point it begins to take off, and I said, all right, I'm going to tell everyone I'm trans, and that could have just said, right, when no one's going to hire you ever again. That was quite on the cards. You know, there was no proof either way. I just thought it's better to come out and tell everyone. So I just think in a marathon runner's type way. I think in a, I play the long game, and here is is the end of a, of, of, of a certain point in a very long game of trying to go towards Shakespeare, which scared the hell out of me as a teenager. It just scared me so much. And now I'm really enjoy, beginning to enjoy it. And, you know, it's it just it was selling out before we even opened, which is kind of amazing because there's no reason why Hamlet, me doing Hamlet, should sell out. Well, so exciting. Great. I mean, it's hard to look beyond this, but actors, as we said, usually work up to Hamlet. Are there other Shakespeare roles you'd stoop to? There there would be, but right now I'm quite happy with Hamlet of Shakespeare's plays. So I'm going to ride this horse for a long, as long as I can. And the great thing about it is it's because it's me on the stage. I don't have to get all the actors back together to do the produ another production because I just keep this production going. It is an evergreen. It is a, a classic, and I will keep experimenting as I as I perform. Not not going off off piece, but just seeing what's out there emotionally, what's out there, and um, bringing that to the to each performance. Each performance is like its press night. That's what I've decided. Each time I'm going out there to take risks. Well, I can't wait for the next experiment. Thank you so much for this. Thank you very much. That was Eddie Izzard speaking to Barbara Bogave. Izzard's Hamlet has recently been extended at the Greenwich House Theater through March 16th. Tickets are available at eddieizzardhamlet.com. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Digital Island Studios in New York and Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at Three Seas Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice to help others find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. Our building in Washington, D.C. has been under construction for the past four years, but we're looking forward to fully reopening on June 21st, 2024. You can find out more about the Folger at our website, 
folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.